Well, we're going to be uh, looking into uh, the Bible, the New Testament of the Bible uh, this morning uh, as uh, we're in the book of Revelation and it's on page uh, 1235 if you want to uh, get it uh, ready as it were. We're looking at um, a series of letters of uh, written communication uh, that was then kind of read out. Actually, they are, they are letters, they are words from Jesus, from the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, particular local churches. These churches existed in uh, Western Turkey in the first century. Uh, and uh, we find these letters, these messages from Jesus to those specific churches um, in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, the, that book of Revelation is in itself, as we saw a few weeks ago, a quite an unusual kind of form of literature. But it's all about revealing things, really. Revealing uh, a, a life or reality as it, as it is seen from kind of the other side, from, from the unseen world. And the Apostle John has this vision uh, of Jesus who tells him to write something down and get it read out in the congregations of these seven uh, particular churches uh, who are in Asia. And um, that's what happens. And as we read these letters from Jesus that were read out to these churches, we, we kind of get a snapshot uh, a kind of a one-off, like a selfie almost of, of the, no, it isn't really a selfie, but you know, a picture of, of the church as it is at that moment in time in that particular place from Jesus' point of view. Uh, that's what the, these are all about. Uh, and we see them through the filter of, of Jesus' eyes, Jesus' perspective, Jesus' vision of these seven local churches. That's why it's called, and I've ripped the title from uh, a book by John Stott called What Christ Thinks of the Church, because very much this is what Jesus thinks of the church uh, in, in these letters. It's a, a rare kind of opportunity to find that out. It's a bit like a review. Each one of these letters has a unique message, but all the churches are, are going to, to know about it. The letter, along with the rest of Revelation, is going to be taken around these seven churches initially by a, a courier, not in a white van, but on some kind of other transport. And in each congregation, the, the book of Revelation ultimately will be heard uh, and read. And we can follow it. We can uh, understand a, a bit about it. I, I don't know whether you were like me, but I remember my um, geography lessons really well in school. Um, partly in my secondary school, uh, our teacher, uh, in, who took us up to uh, uh, O level, GCSE as it now is, was a man called Mr. Chaffee. Mr. Chaffee was uh, tremendously enthusiastic. He was passionate about geography. He's a you know, great teacher, someone with that, that passion for their subject. And when, uh, when he, he, he loved to kind of show you slides when he was talking about you know, rivers and uh, what do you call them, terminal moraines. If you remember those things, you know, those rock and you know, uh, corries and all those other kind of features. And, and he'd show you slides. I think, you know, I think he was so passionate. He used to come back from his holidays in the Lake District and show his pupils, I know it seemed like that to us, show his pupils pictures of, of these different things. And he'd show them up there to, so, and he'd give you examples and, and he'd say, look, this is what it looks like. Uh, and it, they'd be real features, but you, they would apply in all kinds of places so that if ever you were out in the, in the area and you wanted to see a bit of terminal moraine, uh, you, you knew where it was and what it looked like. You see what I mean? 
Uh, sometimes you get, I remember uh, I came across a book that one of my kids owned. It was the, something to do with like the SAS survival guide or something. And um, it had like pictures of different ways to, to be secure. And there, there would be like a, a picture of a, an open place to show you. It was a kind of idealized picture of, so you could recognize where you could hide, where you could be on the right side of a hill or all that kind of stuff. Now, these letters to these churches are a bit like Mr. Chaffee's slideshow. And as well as a bit like that kind of example in the survival book. They're showing you a real thing, but they're saying there's something here that you need to get hold of. There's something here for all churches at all time that are kind of exemplified in the letters. And Jesus himself is seen in a very different way in Revelation. Very clear connections with the Jesus we meet in the Gospels. But this vision of Jesus in his glory it is uh, very different, as we saw in the first chapter. And these letters are all about his relationship with these churches. Remember, he presents, he's presented as, as the one who holds them in his hand. All of them are held in his hand. He's also the one who walks among them. He speaks to all of them. He wants them to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The word is to each of them, but it is also to all of them. And it's to all of us today. And the letter today in chapter 2 is to the church at Thyatira. Here's a map. should come up. There should be. Oh, there it goes. Um, there it is. You can see Thyatira on the map there. It's, uh, it's the one just below Pergamon. The, uh, the courier would have taken a circular route. Apparently there was a great road that went from Ephesus up the coast uh, uh, through uh, Smyrna to Pergamon and then to Thyatira and down. He was going on this circular route carrying his letters and the next next one he comes to is Thyatira. It's the smallest city of the seven but actually gets the longest letter. Don't know why that might be. Uh, As a town we know that it was a center of commerce. It was a pretty well-off place. Perhaps not quite as well-off as Laodicea but but, you know it punched well above its weight economically uh, in terms of its size. It, it, it was a center of trade. Business was their thing in Thyatira. Uh, remember, there's a businesswoman who pops up in the book of Acts. Uh, Lydia came from there. She was a seller of purple cloth. There was a purple that was found in Thyatira. She was very famous all through, I think, uh, many later centuries. There was a color called Turkish red that you could use on your oil paintings and pigments. That, came, that was the Turkish purple dye that came from Thyatira. And it was a prosperous, busy, business-orientated place. And we know that because archaeology has given us uh, lots of evidence that there were a lot of what they call guilds, societies, more than trade unions, more like professional bodies, places that kind of brought the different... There was leather workers, there were cloth people, there were all kind of construction people. Different evidence of these strong groups, these little kind of mini-societies, these communities that were really important... And of course, their goings on, their kind of networking, their life as kind of business communities, all centered around the worship of their gods. And of course, the Roman emperor, who by this time is kind of uh, achieving status as God. Hold that, because that's quite important. So what does Jesus say to this church in that place, and what might we learn? Let's read it. Chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write... These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways, or of her ways, rather. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who come, overcomes rather, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And then this is a quote here, as you'll see from the footnotes from Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church, the spirit says to the churches. Well, pretty challenging words, aren't they, really? What do we make of them? Well, let's have a, a look and see what we can gather First of all, like in all of these letters, the first thing we we kind of come across is a a description of the Jesus who is actually speaking. And as in all of the letters, it's a little kind of segment that comes from the very first chapter, that great vision that John the Apostle had of Jesus in chapter 1. And each letter has a little bit, a little different bit of that overall picture applied into the situation uh, of the church that's getting the letter. And here he's described as the Son of God. His eyes, it says, are blazing. And as we saw in chapter 1, it's almost directly like Daniel's vision of this one, the Ancient of Days. And this one who comes uh, to, to God's throne and is given authority, the Son of Man. Here he's called the Son of God. His feet are like bronze as if they've just been through fire. Seems like they're still glowing. It's a very kind of... Oh, quite an awesome picture, isn't it, of the one who's speaking. Let's just focus a bit on those blazing eyes. What does that mean? Well, you know, we have that, you know, if you, if you read in a, in a novel, uh, you know, somebody said such and such a thing and their eyes flashed, you know. Oh, no, said so-and-so with flashing eyes. You know, you know that, that kind of phrase. We, you know, we understand it doesn't mean their eyes are flashing, but it has this idea that, that behind the eye there's this, of response this kind of awareness of what's going on and there's there's a kind of a you know what's in the heart of the person kind of come out through the eyes so to speak it has that idea jesus is the one who sees and who reacts who cares about what he sees and kind of feeds back very definitely as we see in this uh, letter This Jesus who speaks is the Jesus who knows. It says here, again, in each of these letters, I know. Each time he says, I know this. I know this. And there's great comfort there, I think. 
There's a great comfort that when, when, when we, we, we hear Jesus speaking to us or when we, we start to deal with Jesus Christ, we know he knows. We don't have to, uh, and in one sense, we don't have to explain. There's no need to explain. There's no need to hide. There's no need to think that he doesn't know what it's like to go through what I'm going through. Interesting that his feet have just come through the furnace. And there's comfort in knowing that he is the one who knows? There's security. There's comfort there. But also, of course, there is this um, challenge. If there's something I know that is not what he wants or is not part of his revealed will for me or that is wrong in my life, there's no point hiding that either. He knows that too. And that's partly what's coming out in this letter. Uh, but it goes on to say, he says, I know your deeds. I know what you do, he says. And here it's quite positive, isn't it? He's saying, look, your lives are showing what you believed. Ian said last week, and if you, didn't, if you missed Ian's message last week, listen to it online. It was a really great message. Thank you, Ian. But this idea uh, Ian mentioned of, you know, Jesus said we must not only hear his words, but do them. Uh, and that, you know, if you really want to know what you really believe, well, you look at what you do. Jesus is saying, I know what you do, he says to the Thyatiran church. I know that. It reveals it. And that's how Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus in the first of these seven letters. He says there, I know your deeds. Actually, he doesn't say that in the next two, but then all the rest he does. I know your work. I know what you're doing. I know what you do. And for Thyatira, there's praise. He says, I know your love. I know about your faith. I know about your service. There it is in verse 19. I know about your endurance, your perseverance. And what's more, he says, I know you're growing in these things. He says, you are now doing more than you did at first. Thyatira then is in a really good place, aren't they? Jesus is saying, it's good. Guys, I know what you're doing. It's great. You could compare it with Ephesus. Yeah, the, the church at Ephesus were told that they were, they'd left behind their first love. The, the Thyatirans hadn't. Jesus said, I know your love. The uh, Ephesian church were told to, to go and do the things you used to do at first. You know, you, and the Thyatiran church are told, you, you're doing more than you did at first. It's great. It's really good. Their faith was strong. They hadn't left their love behind. They were able to get on and do things, trusting that God would work. And he did. That's that practical faith. They served others with perseverance. It says, you're a great church for serving people. It's fantastic. And you're doing more. That's a great place to be in. I think we can stop for a minute and say, well, it would be great if Jesus could say that about your life or my life, wouldn't it? Or our church community. That we're loving him more than we've used to. That we're trusting God for more and more. That we're keeping going in serving and, and being uh, persevering in that. And it's growing growth. It's a good thing to know in our lives. In these areas, these dimensions of growth are very good. Challenge for us. But that's not the whole picture though, is it? Because it goes on as it does in some of these other letters. Verse 20 to, says, to say, nevertheless, I've got something against you. There are problems. And he goes on to illustrate the problems in the church at Thyatira, just like in the last one at Pergamum, by making reference uh, to an Old Testament story. 
This time it's the story of Ahab and Jezebel. There you are, you see that word. Um, you, ha- never listen. you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, Jeze- I mean, that some of us of a certain age know all about Jezebel, and it's in the culture. If you, you say of someone, she's a Jezebel, you kind of know what that means. It means that not a very good, not a very nice lady, basically, if you're called a Jezebel and you're a lady, uh, or, or a man probably as well. It's not a compliment, you know? And the reason for that, those of you who may not know the kind of reason for that, uh, it's because there was this woman who married King Ahab, one of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. He was a bit of a wobbly king anyway, but it wasn't helped by his marriage to Jezebel, who uh, was a bit of a Jezebel, being the very first Jezebel, if you see what I mean. She, she, was, um, uh, uh, she was the daughter of a foreign king. When it was a kind of political alliance. Her, her kingdom worshipped the Canaanite gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. Uh, and she, with a uh, great enthusiasm, came into the, the, the royal family of Israel, got married to Ahab, and as I say, with passion, introduced the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth and other Canaanite gods into the community of Israel. And that was not a good thing at all. She got people to worship these gods. She didn't say stop worshipping Yahweh. She didn't say don't, don't worship the Lord. She said, yeah, worship Yahweh, but let me tell you about Baal. Let me, you know, come and have a little bit of Ashtoreth here. And you need to get hold of, you get a bit modern, you know. Every, all the other countries are worshipping these gods. You know, you, you need to be there with them. Certainly, if you're going to get on in the world, she was saying. If Israel's going to be an economic power in the world of the Canaanites, well, obviously, you need to be worshipping the same gods. That was what was happening. It was a bad time in Israel, and God sees this through the prophets because it carried on as spiritual adultery. She pushed her, her, um, her, kind of her own thing in that way. It was a dangerous deception. That was how it was in Israel. He was, she was teaching, she was leading people to be unfaithful to the Lord into spiritual adultery. That's what God calls it in the Old Testament. Whenever his peoples go after other idols, he says, you're meant to be married to me, says the Lord. You're going after other idols. You're committing spiritual adultery, which was very appropriate, actually, because the worship of Baal and Asheroth was all about fertility. It was all about sex, and actually there was a great deal of sex that went on in the worship of Baal and Asheroth, probably why it was so popular in in Canaan uh, at the time. That was what was happening. Now in Thyatira there, one of their teachers is claiming to speak from God. He's saying there's a teacher here who's prophesying, saying they're speaking from God, but leading people away from Jesus. She's a woman in the church, so there's a reference to Jezebel. Now what could be happening? Well, remember what I said about Thyatira? It's a town built on business, built on commerce, built on the guilds. Do you remember when we were looking at 1 Corinthians in Roman society... Dinners at the, at, the, at the local temple were where you did your networking, where you did your business. And when you were needing to get, get, get going in business and, you know, to, to be kind of fitting in or to, to be effective and successful, uh, the whole thing worked on the worship of, of pagan deities, not Jesus. And as part of that worship, there was a, a fair amount of, of sex going on uh, at the kind of local idol temple and part of the dinners that they had. 
And this woman uh, was encouraging Christians to put something else in their lives alongside Jesus that were idols. In this case, it was money and sex, really. It was saying, you know, it's okay, you can carry on, go back to the ways you did. And, you know, you keep your business and you can carry on with Jesus. And it doesn't matter about, you know, your lifestyle. It doesn't matter if there's some, you know, there, there are other kind of, you know, bow down to another idol. Hey, it doesn't really matter, you know. God knows your heart, all this kind of stuff. She would have been saying, I suspect. We don't know because we haven't got any records of exactly what it was. But it's not difficult to put it together. Now, let me do, I'm just going to have to do a slight diversion because these things are, are, are important. Now, was this because she was a woman? Okay, we know what all the debates are in the evangelical church and so on. Well, no. Jesus makes that very clear, doesn't he? The problem is not that she's a woman. The problem is that it's because of what she's teaching and claiming to be God's words. That's the problem. There's no issue whatsoever about her gender. Which you'd have thought, actually, if that was a problem, Jesus might have picked on that one as well. But he doesn't. Because actually, women in the Bible were prophets. There were women in leadership positions in the Bible. Some of them taught. Not as many as men, but that's what you'd expect in that culture at that time. Now, there's one situation in the New Testament where clearly there was a prohibition against women teaching in the church. It's in 1 Timothy 2. But generally... The Bible paints a picture of men and women being able to be in leadership, teaching, and ministry together. The issue is whether or not you take that, that situation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and say that's the norm all time everywhere, or was it just related to one place? Now, I also need to say this because of something that I picked up just around the city recently. Some people accuse churches like us that encourage women in teaching and leadership of not taking the Bible seriously. They question whether we can really be an evangelical church. An evangelical simply means Bible-based. Taking the Bible seriously. But I want to say, really, that the reason we encourage women and men to teach and lead is precisely because we do take the Bible seriously. All of it. The Old Testament... The New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, the book of Revelation. We don't just pick on two particular verses. It's actually quite a difficult passage to interpret and build everything out of that. So if someone says, Portsmouth Church, that's not evangelical, either you know, get them to have a chat with one of us or, or just say, well, we are. The reason we do what we do is because we take the Bible very seriously. Now, different ones of us may have different conclusions, and that's fine. But, it, but neither of us can say of the other, we're not evangelical. We don't take the Bible seriously because we come to different conclusions about things that are not fundamental to the gospel. I put it in because it's in the passage, and I think it may need to be said. Let's go back to Thyatira. At Thyatira, this whole business was actually seductive. Verse 20, this, this woman is misleading my servants. Actually, the word is beguiling in some versions. Jesus, in verse 24, calls this false teaching Satan's so-called deep secrets. You see, this group led by Jezebel 
were offering something extra, weren't they? They were offering a secret, special knowledge that ordinary Christians might not know about. But the great thing about this special teaching they were offering was it made you capable of getting on well in business and life back in Thyatira again. You wouldn't have to have all those embarrassing exits from parties uh, when the worship began and the prostitutes arrived. That's what happened at dinners, uh, business dinners in Thyatira and Corinth and, and right across the Roman world. That's how business networking got done. And you wouldn't have to leave anymore. Or you wouldn't have those embarrassing kind of times when, when you had to say no to practices or to a lifestyle issue or to worshipping another god. Because Jezebel and her group had given you special knowledge, a new way of understanding that would, hey, you could have something else alongside Jesus in your life. It'll be fine. It was very beguiling. It was very seductive. It's also, Jesus says, dangerous. As he goes on to show, as Ian said last week, it really matters to Jesus that they're going this way. And Jesus says it will damage them if it goes on. There will be damage. And you know, sometimes you do, well, you do see this. I can think of examples that, you know, where you get this, uh, a very controlling teacher or teaching that ends up having a kind of secret power over people. They can lead you away from Jesus and his purity, and that will damage your kind of spiritual children. There's some strange references. I'm going to re- just reference it in a minute. Some of us may be old enough, like me, to remember the children. Well, no, remember the Jesus people. Who remembers the Jesus people? Yeah, a few of us see. Who are the Jesus people, some of you are thinking? What are they talking about? Well, in the um, 60s, uh, 60s and 70s, there was a, uh, a kind of movement in the States, particularly it started there, where young people became followers of Jesus and became really radical in that. And they were really passionate for God. And they were known as Jesus people. Lots of different groups. And, and they were really great. You know, they were radical. They were different. They were on the streets. There was lots of really good sound people like Larry Norman who, who wrote songs. And there was a guy called Arthur Blessed who used to walk around with a cross, huge cross on his shoulder, you know, wheeling it across America and talking to people. And the people lived in community. And it was a really, really rather special. It's really rather wonderful. Wonderful. Well, one of those groups was a group called the Children of God. Remember them, some of us? Who started off in that group, and they had a really strong leader called David Moses something. I forget his name. And he became so strong, and he started kind of controlling it. And it wasn't long before people in the Children of God, those were given special ways of witnessing. They called it, you know, well, I'll tell you what they called it, and you can work out what happened. It was called flirty fishing. Okay. <laughs> And seriously, it was actually called that in his books, uh, in his kind of uh, documents. And, and obviously it was women who were particularly encouraged to do evangelism that way. And all kinds of things happened, and it's very sad. But I've met people who are now my age who have been seriously, seriously damaged by that. Damage kind of results out of this kind of stuff. Anything that takes us away from Jesus, anything that kind of put someone else in the place that he should be in well Jesus tells them what to do about it for those involved he says you need to repent several times he says repent repent 
I'm waiting for people to repent. Jesus says, I want these people to repent. I want her followers to repent. What does that mean? It's the idea of changing your mind and changing your direction. As I say in verse 21, Jesus says, I've been waiting for this. Jesus is saying, there is a way out of this danger. There's a way of saying, no, I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to leave that behind and I'm going to walk out of it. I may need help to do that. I may need another person to help me with that or or whatever. But the the fundamental kind of change of direction is there. Even for the one at the center of it. Even Jezebel, Jesus is saying, uh, whoever she was, he said, if if she'd repent, if she'd get, get straightened out, if she'd realize that what she's teaching is wrong, I want her to find the way out too. This is not a kind of vindictive Jesus here. Jesus is saying, you can get out of it. But there is a warning. Jesus says, this teaching will destroy you. And this is very destructive imagery. It's quite hard to read. They're talking about casting someone on a bed of suffering. What does that mean? It could mean lots of things. I don't have time to go into it. Is it literal? Is it talking about the actual literal kind of destruction of physical children? Well, I don't know whether you can understand it that way. It could make much more sense of the kind of spiritual destruction of, of spiritual children, rather like those people in the children of God, you know, who, whose kind of spiritual lives were destroyed by this kind of teaching that they were getting because it was kind of putting something or someone else, uh, you know, in the center of their life apart from Jesus. But it's clearly a warning I mean, we are, the New Testament age did include, we are in the age when Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, was it chapter 6, was it? Or before then, I haven't looked it up, where you know, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they, they literally got slain in the Holy Spirit. You know, they died as a result of their blatant public lie against God. It did happen in the early church. Now, you know, I, I don't think we see that so much these days. I hope we don't. I'm not, I've never known it myself. But there's still a warning, isn't there? That's the point. There's a warning here. Jesus is saying this stuff is bad for you. Bad for your spiritual health. And it could be bad for your physical health. Spiritual adultery then. Idolatry. Something else in our lives that taking the center place instead of Jesus. It just messes you up spiritually. It messes up your spiritual children. Those who may be following you. So if there's something growing in my life or in your life that's taking you away from Jesus, we need to turn around and leave it behind. Repent. So if I'm behaving, if you're behaving, if we're behaving as a community, as if money, sex, or power are more important than Jesus' call to holiness, integrity, and humility, we need to walk away from those things. Got that? The gods of our world are money, sex, and power. Jesus comes and calls us to holiness, to integrity, to humility. So if we're going in the world's direction, turn around, repent, walk away from it. And if someone has that kind of controlling steer, like Jezebel did on her followers, if someone is kind of controlling what you believe, either through their books or through their DVDs or or through their preaching or their leadership or in, in a personal relationship or anything that has that controlling power that's taking you away from the Jesus we see in Scripture, then get away from it. And the call to repent means we can get away. We can change.
It's a great calling. Repentance, you know, some people think repent means, you know, some miserable person saying, repent or you're going to perish, you know. No, it's, it's, you can leave the way you're going on. That's the message of repentance. You don't have to carry on this way. You can turn around and get out of it. And as I say, you need God's help for that. You may need the help of brothers and sisters. But the message of hope in any call to repentance is that change is possible. You hear that? Change is possible. It doesn't have to be the way it is. Jesus says, repent. So if you're involved in this kind of stuff, get out of it. Repent. What about those who aren't involved? To those, he says, hold on. Verse 25. Got to rush here. Going to skim a bit. But just to get the big ideas. I'm rushing in my notes. I'm not rushing because I don't have time. I knew there wasn't time to, to give it everything. People who are not involved with Jezebel and her crowd and that teaching, they're they're just told to hold on, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have. What do you have? What do you hold on to what you have? Isn't Jesus saying, hold on to Jesus, hold on to me? That's enough. You've got enough. You don't need any extra. He said, I'm not going to add any extra burdens to you. It seems like he's telling them just to trust Jesus to work it out. He's saying, don't go with that teaching. Encourage those in it to leave it. And those who don't, well, just leave it to the Lord. You know, don't start an inquisition. It's not up to you to go and kind of force people to change their mind. It's not up to you to go and kidnap people out of a situation. But, you know, you, you, you just, you want them to leave and you want them to, to get on the right path. But, but leave it to the Lord in this occasion. I think that's quite wise wisdom, actually, in lots of these situations. Because Jesus goes on to say that he will intervene he will intervene stay with the lord stay with the gospel trust it to him the truth about jesus is enough and then comes this promise at the end and there is a promise in all of the letters to the churches at the end of the letters uh, verse 26 there's a promise to the person who holds on who keeps going who's faithful to jesus right on through the pressure and it's, uh, it's this quotation from Psalm 2. Jesus is saying, if you hold on, you're going to share my glory. You're going to share my life. It's actually a picture of sharing government with him. More than that, he says, I will give him the morning star. <laughs> what does that mean? Again, those of us of a certain age may be thinking of a newspaper that used to be called the morning star. But it's not that. Sorry, most of you don't get that. You're all too young, so that's good. Uh, 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 Revelation 22 Verse 16, right at the very end of the book, Jesus says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. This is how he ends the book of Revelation. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus says, I am the bright. What's the morning star? It's the star you see just before dawn, I guess. It's the sign that dawn is coming of hope. You've been having a terrible night. You think, how long is this night going to go on? If you look outside and see the morning star, you think, it's not much longer to wait. Jesus is saying, I am that morning star. I I will give you myself, says Jesus. I am with you. Hold on. Hold on. It's not that long to wait. So what can we learn? What might the Spirit be saying to Portswood Church or the church in Southampton? It's good to keep growing, isn't it? Not, not numbers, that's good, that's fine, lots of good reasons for that. But much more important, 
to be growing in our love, our faith, our service, our perseverance. But we need to be careful not to be seduced away from Jesus to the idols of our culture. If we do, it's spiritual adultery. It's very dangerous. Beware any kind of secret power that pulls us away from Jesus. Don't give any teaching or person a kind of power like that over your life. If you have to keep it secret, particularly if they tell you to, it's almost certainly dangerous, I would say. It can't be talked about openly. And make sure we repent. You know, in the, uh, there's one in Bath, there's lots of places. You know, where there's a really steep hill, there's an escape lane. You know, that's, you know it's like a, a, a soft kind of thing where if your brakes are failing, what do you do? You turn out of the road into the escape lane and it slows you down safely. If you're hurtling down towards destruction because something is wrong, for goodness sake, repent. Get into the escape lane. Slow down and see it put right. Now some people, and I can only have time to do and I, I only want to say this briefly, have suffered from this kind of, it's, it's sometimes in literature is refer, referred to as spiritual abuse. Where a, another believer or a church or a teaching has had such a control over you that it's, it's really messed you up. Uh, Sadly, most of the people who've been through that don't ever find their way back into churches. But if you're one of those people, or if you know somebody is, can I just encourage you to get help? We can refer you to counsellors who are specialists in, in this kind of area. There is a way out. Talk to someone. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, listen to the bits, firstly in the word. That's what's happening in in Revelation. Jesus is bringing the word. He's saying, listen to what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is speaking through the words of Jesus in Scripture. Listen to the Spirit there. Listen to the Spirit in other ways too, of course. But hold on to Jesus. He is enough. The future, our future is with him. And it's guaranteed. And he's done such a great deal for us. Why do we need anything else if we've got Jesus? Sim, back to you.